The Gemara in Sota tells us that the names of the Miraglim illustrate something about their character and their rebellion against Hashem's promise about Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Yitzchak says, out of all 12 of them, we only have a tradition about one of the names, and Rabbi Yochanan adds one other, which is strange because it's quite common actually to explain the meanings of people's names in Torah. So how come over here do we only have this one or two? We're also going to analyze the nature of how exactly both opinions express their opinions. And what will emerge quite interestingly is that we're actually not looking just simply to interpret their names, but the expression is also be ordained. What, what could it teach us? And so in spite of the fact that there was a whole rebellion happening, there's a lesson for us from one of the names for sure and to a certain extent from one of the other names. And it will go to the heart of what it is the Miraglim did wrong. It wasn't just simply that they rejected Hashem outright. It was a sense of uh, misunderstanding what Yiddishkeit is all about and thinking that the most important thing is Torah learning and not appreciating the value of mitzvahs because obviously moving into Eretz Yisrael, they'd have many more physical responsibilities, which would bring with them mitzvahs as well. And so we're going to see that there are three ways in which a person could understand and appreciate the value of Torah versus the value of mitzvahs. And the Miraglim missed the last point, and that's also Biodena. That's what we have to learn out of this story. Is it a Gemara? The Gemara tells us, I'm Reb Yitzchak. We have a tradition in our hands from our forefathers, the Miraglim Hashem Asem Nikru, that the Miraglim were named to represent their actions. And out of all 12 of them, only one of them has, so to speak, come to hand. And that is Sasur ben Michoel. Sasur means that he contradicted or destroyed Hashem's words. And Michoel Mach. Michal comes from the word moch, to be weak, that he made out as if Hashem is weak, because that's one of the things the Miraglim said, that, you know, chazakumimenu, that the nation living in Canaan, or the nations, were even more powerful than Hashem. So Rabbi Yitzchak says, that, that's the one we can see. Am Rabbi Yochanan, af onu noimar. Rabbi Yochanan says, e, we could even say, nachmi ben vavsi. Nachbi means that he concealed Hashem's words. Vavsi means that he trampled on Hashem's characteristics. Rashi. Rashi explains what's going on over here. And he says, also that when Rabbi Yitzchak says that we only have one that came to hand, that means we actually don't know how to derive the meanings of the other names. And basically what Rashi seems to be saying is that we only have the capacity and the knowledge to explain one name out of 12 and how it relates to the story of the Miraglim. So if we're going to take that approach, then it emerges that there's a debate here between Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yitzchak says there's only one name that we know how to explain, and Rabbi Yochanan is disagreeing and saying, no, actually there's two names. That's what it would appear to be. However, it's not so simple to understand that. There are a few questions that immediately come to mind. So now, there's a number of questions that immediately emerge once you take that view that Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Yechanan are arguing about how many we have a tradition as to how to interpret their names. Number one. Okay, let's be honest. How difficult is it to use the methodology of Drush to explain the names of all of the Miraglim and link them somehow to their behavior? Why is it that Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Yochan could come up with a maximum of only two names that they could explain? What, what is so different about the names of the Miraglim from all the other names of biblical characters where we find that Chazal explain the names and what they represent? Yes, of course, drush is not open season, and there are rules that you have to follow how you interpret a name. So it's not just that you could decide any which way you'd like. But what we do know about drush is that it doesn't always have to match exactly into the pshat. Drush is a little bit more flexible. 
And not every single letter within every single word has to match exactly the drasha that we want to teach. To the extent that we actually say you cannot challenge a drash because the, the rules are fairly flexible. So what's so difficult over here to interpret all the other Meraglim's names? And especially when you consider that there are other places where Chazal address the other names of the, of the Meraglim, including the Medrash Tanchum that goes through all 12. So why is the Gemara making it sound in Rabbi Yitzchak's voice like this is it, this is the only one we've got? Why? So what's so difficult about it? That's question one. Question two. When Rabbi Yochanan wants to say that he also has an interpretation of Nachbi ben Vavsi, why does he use what seems to be hyperbolic language? We can also say Nachbi ben Vavsi. He could have just simply said, No, you said Olib Echad. I say Olib We have two that come to hand. Or he could have just simply said, There are two. Rabbi Yitzchak said one, he says two. Why does he have to say, Af, Onu, Noimar, we will also say? Number three. Anybody who's familiar with Gemara will know that where the word Omar goes tells you whether this is an added opinion or a debating opinion. So here it says, Omar Rabbi Yochanan. That Rabbi Yochanan also says, as opposed to Rabbi Yochanan Omar, which would mean that Rabbi Yochanan disagreed and said, it's actually quite clear that Rabbi Yochanan is not disagreeing with Rabbi Yitzchak, he's just adding another layer. So Rabbi Yitzchak says we have one name, and Rabbi Yochanan is saying, in addition, you could also consider another name. That's actually, you can see it in the word, he says, we'll even say, even implies that you're adding. We can even add another one. So it seems pretty clear that Rabbi Yochanan is not coming to disagree with Rabbi Yitzchak as we originally thought. He's just adding another layer, which then raises the question, <laughs> Now this seems very strange, because the way that the Gemara is wording it is as if Rabbi Yochanan is not disagreeing with Rabbi Yitzchak. Yet, the very fact that Rabbi Yitzchak said we only have one name and Rabbi Yochanan is saying we have two is already a debate. So it seems very strange over here. So what is so difficult to interpret? And why does he say, And is there really an argument going on over here? And then, a really important question we have to address is, We're going to go with what Rabbi Yitzchak says, that all of the Miraglim were named to match their behavior, and that's a Masoiris, which means it's not open to debate. It's a tradition that we have right from the beginning. How could Moshe have chosen them? He should have looked at their names and seen straight away that these are the wrong people for the, for the job. Especially as we know that there's a klal, that you are supposed to analyze names and understand things about people because of their names. So if it is true that the names were so objectionable, and we may not have the tradition any longer of how each one of them is so, but we know that they were objectionable, so how did Moshe choose them in the first place? And lastly, also we know this from Rashi, that at the time that they were dispatched as Meraglim, they were still righteous individuals. That implies that whatever went wrong with the Meraglim has to in some subtle way be possible for a tzaddik to do wrong. So in addition to all the technical questions that we're asking about, whether they are debating Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Yochanan, why can't you just explain the meanings of their names? Why does he say Af Anu Noimar? There's some glaring questions over here. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu not analyze them based on their names? And the other glaring question is, if they were tzaddikim at the time of their dispatch, that implies that there's something about the behavior that even a tzaddik in a very subtle way might also succumb to. What is that? Okay, so we'll try and attempt an answer. See if it works. 
Maybe we can at, at, at least address two out of the five questions. So we said, okay, listen, is there a debate between Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Yochanan? Maybe not. Maybe Rabbi Yitzchak is saying there's only one that we still have as a Masoiris, an immutable tradition. And then there are other possibilities like what Rabbi Yochanan is going to suggest. And then Rabbi Yochanan could say, and this will explain the language that he uses, we can, we can also add. So there's the Masuris, which Rabbi Yitzchak quoted, that's been passed through the generations, in addition to which we, through our own understanding, we can give this particular insight. In other words, That would basically be Rabbi Yochanan saying, Rabbi Yitzchak, I agree with you that there is only a tradition about one name, but I have insight to suggest a possible understanding of another name, Nachbi Ben Vavsi. Okay, so maybe that's how we could answer those two questions. But then that's just going to go back to question one. If Rabbi Yochanan was willing to suggest one interpretation, why did he not suggest another 11 interpretations? Say, this is the one that we have a tradition, and this is how I believe we should understand all the other names. Gam, furthermore. The language over here is very carefully chosen. Rabbi Yitzchak says, we don't have in our hands, also it hasn't come up into our hand, except for one. Why doesn't he just say simply like, we still have one, we still know one. It actually sounds like what Rabbi Yitzchak is saying is this. We have a tradition that the Miraglim's names are related to their behavior. Also, the only one we could decode is the name of Sasur ben Michoel. In other words, what Rabbi Yitzchak sounds like he is saying is that the tradition is not that this is how you interpret the name Sasur ben Michoel. The tradition is that we're supposed to interpret the names. And the only one we have succeeded in decoding is Sasur ben Michoel. Okay, so that really brings up the first question very strongly. Why? Why did we only succeed in understanding one? Surely there are various names in the Maragdan that we could interpret. Now, before we can go any further, let's understand what exactly are we saying about these names and what they convey. So we need to understand, What do you mean, Sasur ben Michal means that he destroyed Hashem's deeds? Where did you find the Miraglim destroying anything that Hashem had done? You could say that they undermined people's faith in, in Hashem, their optimism about Eretz Yisrael. You could say that they disagreed with Hashem's promise. But where do you see them destroying Hashem's deeds? Where do you see that? So Rashi says, means that they kind of undermined Hashem because they came back with such a negative report, so they undermined Hashem. Rashi's explanation only works according to the version that Rashi had in his Gemara, which is that Sasur ben Michoel means he disrupted or contradicted Hashem's words. But our version of the Gemara says that he undermined Hashem's actions. So if you had to suggest that somebody goes against what Hashem says, that is definitely different from destroying what Hashem has made. So we need to understand that. So the Marsha is a very nice explanation. And he says, look, when we're talking about that they broke Hashem's deeds, what they're saying is they undermined all of the miracles that had happened up, up until this point, which should have given them the faith that everything was going to be okay. So the Marsha says, that it actually refers to all the miracles that happened at the time of the Exodus. So the Marsha changes the word Sosar from Soiser to break, and he uses that as the word Seiser, secret, like they covered up. The Miraglim covered up the miracles. They didn't want to pay attention to them because they obviously wanted to say how difficult and challenging and dangerous everything was going to be. 
Not so simple to explain this way because Avol Pirish Zeh Einim Mechuvar. It's not so glat. Shar Loshen Agemara He Sosar Loshen Stiras Binyan. The actual wording that the Gemara used was Sosar as a verb, past tense verb. He destroyed. Okay, the Mucham Midivra Masha Gufa Shetchila Shetchila Pirish Mashmas Loshen Sosar He Stir. V'Rach Lachayz Ani Tamok in the Pirish the Pirush Shevichisa. Even the Marashah himself says it. He says that the direct understanding of this expression is that they undermined or destroyed, demolished Hashem's words. And then only after does the Marashah give the possibility that maybe it means to cover. So what does it mean when we say over here that the Meraglim destroyed Hashem's deeds? And that's represented by Sesur ben Michoel. How do you destroy Hashem's deeds? Question two, the next one, Nachbi ben Vavsi. When Rabbi Yochanan says that Nachbi means that he concealed Hashem's words, Rashi says that it means means that he said things, or the Meraglim generally said things, that were not the way that they actually should have been said. That makes no sense. Nachbi ben Vavsi didn't change something that Hashem said. They ch- he changed what he saw. Instead of reporting back that this is a beautiful land and so and all these wonderful things, what did he say? And, and all the other scary tactics that they used. So why is it called hiding Hashem's words? It should have been hiding your own words. And then lastly, on the same section, when he says Vafsi means that they trampled on Hashem's character. So what does Rashi say? That means they skipped over facts and didn't present the story as it was. So surely Rashi should have explained if it says that they skipped over or they trampled over Hashem's characteristics. Tell us which ones. Tell us what they skipped. Tell us what they diminished. So again, we'll try with the Marasha. The Marasha says that when it says that he hid or he skipped over or trampled Hashem's words, it doesn't mean that he didn't say things as they were. This is a beautiful explanation, that it was actually in Nachbi ben Vafsi's own mind that he couldn't see, that Hashem's traits were hidden from him. That means in his own mind he couldn't see Hashem's promises being real. When Hashem told us it's going to be a good land, he just couldn't see it. He was blind to Hashem's promise. And when it says that he trampled over or skipped over Hashem's characteristics, what that actually means is he lacked the faith to believe that whatever Debeshter does will be good for those who believe in him. And he, he just didn't see that. So the Marashal wants to suggest that it's not that he was concealing information from the community as much as he just literally couldn't see the information with his own eyes. He was, he was too caught up in his own reality and he, he couldn't see the information. Now the problem is, if you're going to go with the Maharshal's explanation, why do you need two different words? Because effectively you're saying the same thing. He couldn't see Hashem's characteristics. And he couldn't see Hashem's words. So why is one called hiding and the other one called stepping over? That face value, it's the same message. Didn't have faith in Hashem. So we really need to understand what's going on over here. We need to understand what exactly are Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Yochanan trying to convey to us. Why is it so mysterious to explain what the names of the Miraglim actually mean? Is there a debate happening between Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Yochanan? Why does he say Afon and Noimar? What is the significance of these names? How is it possible Moshe Rabbeinu appointed them to the position knowing by their names that they were not well suited? And of course... The big question of the big question of how is it possible to allude to tzaddikim being susceptible to whatever lack of faith these miraglim had? Sometimes, when you want to understand something, you really have to go back, read what you've said, and ask yourself: Have I read it correctly? Have I really picked up the message over here? So, nekutas abir What was Rabbi Yitzchak actually trying to tell us? 
When Rabbi Yitzchak says that out of all of the names of the Meraglim, only one of them came to hand, he's not saying we don't know how to interpret each name of each of the Meraglim and associate it with their deeds. He's telling us something else. Why do we learn Torah? To be able to apply it in practice. So also be the interpretation of the other names of the Miraglim don't have something be that we could put into hand. In other words, those interpretations are not going to have a direct impact on how we should serve Hashem. The other names of the Miraglim are not going to speak to us in our Avoida Hashem. It's Dafka this name. These, this one name, Sasur ben Michoel, has a take-home message for us. That's what Rabbi Yitzchak is saying. That's why he uses this expression. Also be yodenu. What comes to my hand as a, a, a person living in today's world? What do I learn from uh, this particular individual? So, All the other names of the other Meraglim have relevance to previous generations, our so-called forefathers. They had to be in previous generations, primarily in the time of uh, the Midbar. They had to be really careful to avoid all the different behaviors represented by all the different Miraglim. But for us today, only one of them is directly relevant and has to be applied in our lives. We only have one behavior to avoid, which is Sasur ben Michoel. We have to be sure that we don't land up in a situation where we destroy Hashem's deeds. That's what we have to focus on. So now, of course, we have to understand what that means to destroy Hashem's deeds. But that's Rabbi Yitzchak's message. Also, be your day new. The only take home story for us as modern Jewish people. Don't fall into the trap of Sasur ben Michoel. Rabbi Yechonon says, no, no. We can add another one, even Nachbi ben Bavsi. Meaning, Rabbi Yechonon says, I agree with you, Rabbi Yitzchak, that there's only one kind of behavior that is as much of an issue for us today as it was for our forefathers in previous generations. רבי as it was for previous generations. Nachbi ben Vavsi is something we should be aware of, but it's not as scary, it's not as important, so to speak, as Sasur ben Michoel. We can also confront it, we can also analyze it. There's a way to make it relevant to us as well. Okay, so this is all a little bit abstract at this point. So what exactly is a Surah Michael? How does it apply in my life? What is Nachbi Ben Vavsi, which applies, but maybe not to the same extent? We can only really answer that question if we have a healthy understanding of what the Miraglim did wrong. Once we appreciate what they did wrong, then we can answer these questions. So to understand this, let's go back to what Chassidus explains in many places. The primary problem the Miraglim had is they did not want to leave the Midbar, which is this beautiful cocoon life. Everything delivered to your doorstep, no major stress, and you could focus completely on spiritual matters. And now that we're going to go into a normal country, a settled land, where you'd have responsibilities. As soon as they got into that land, they were given instructions. So they were given instructions, which were, you have to get involved in the agriculture, you have to run businesses, you have to be hands-on in the physical world. And so therefore, the minute you have to get involved in the physical world, there comes a cost. 
همه راگلیم لای راحت زلاهی را دلشپیل از مایلم مخشابه لایلم عدی بر بفرات لایلم مایسه In the language of Hasidus, living in the Midbar, they were encased in the world of ideas. They did not want to leave that space and go into the world of conversation and certainly not into the world of deed. It was too low for them, too spiritually dull for them. Here they were with Moshe Rabbeinu, fresh content every single day. Dor, Dea, they had this incredible insight. They were living within the thought space of spirituality. They didn't want to have to live in the action space of Olam Hazir. In serving Hashem, you could say this is the distinction between serving Hashem through Torah learning and through mitzvah observance. Learning Torah requires intellect and thought and understanding. Even if you want to translate ideas into words, still, it's a very lofty spiritual experience. Whereas mitzvahs require physical action with physical items in a physical reality. The Meraglim wanted to stay in the desert. In an environment where your primary focus is learning Torah. Rather than to go into Eretz Yisrael where you have to shift focus and a lot of the time you had previously dedicated to learning Torah, now you have to do practical mitzvahs. So that was the misguided perspective of the Meraglim. Why? Because the reality is that learning Torah is not the most important thing. It's the application. They wanted to have a world so that in the lowest realm we could create Hashem's home. And how do you do that? If the goal is to make the lowest world into a place that can accommodate Hashem, then you have to use the lowest world. The lowest world is not a place of just academic or abstract spiritual concepts. It's a place of tangible realities where you actually have to physically work with physical items. So because the purpose is to make a home for Hashem in the lowest realms, you have to get into the world. The Meraglim didn't want to go there. Avol shalkach kosher. There's only one question we have to ask. Seeing as the Miraglim initially were good people, Tzadikim, how did they make such a radical mistake about such a fundamental principle? Surely they understood that the purpose of Judaism is mitzvahs. I mean, they read the Torah, right? And it speaks about practical mitzvahs that you have to do. How could they have become so misguided to think that you don't actually have to do those mitzvahs? How could they have possibly reached a point where they imagined that it's not necessary or important to actually do mitzvahs? Sounds so strange. Whether you like it or not, we have to therefore say, They knew that the most important thing is that you have to do mitzvahs. Not only do you have to do mitzvahs, but it's the most important. The only thing is that they believed that the kind of mitzvahs that they did while they were still in the desert was sufficient. Because, of course, even in the desert there were many mitzvahs to fulfill. Okay, maybe not the agricultural mitzvahs, but many others. And there were many opportunities to use ordinary life as a tool to serve Hashem. But, of course, they did not need the same investment in action as you would need in Eretz Yisrael. So, what did they get wrong? What they got wrong is there's the principle of trying to balance Talmud and Maiseh, learning and application. And everybody agrees, that the most important thing is the application. However, the Miraglim had one understanding of why that is and therefore how it should play out. And the expectation Hashem had from them was a completely different expectation with a different way that it should play out. And in fact, what we're going to identify is three possible ways in which a person could see that when we say, if you look at things on a deeper level, when we say that the priority is not learning, rather it is doing, so it's not like everybody thinks, okay, there's two choices of you. I have to fulfill two things as a Jewish person. I have to learn Torah and I have to do mitzvahs. But it turns out that mitzvahs is the, is the more important of the two. It's deeper than that. Therefore, 
the deeper message is that the overarching purpose of the entire service of Hashem is to bring things to a point of Misa, of application. Kloimer. Gamma Medjash Atzmai. What that means is that even the learning is supposed to be completely focused on Maise. Or the learning itself has to be brought into a reality of Maise. Not just do I learn so that I'll know what to do. The goal is that my learning should become part of how the Maise expresses itself. Now, we'll explain what that means. Signan Acher. Uh, to put it into other words, So we're not saying that there's a choice between learning Torah and doing mitzvahs, and mitzvahs take priority. What we're saying is the experience of learning Torah has to be completely invested, not just in an end goal of mitzvahs, but invested in the mitzvahs. So the expression we'll use for this is that your learning should lead to action, but that in itself is three levels of what it could mean. Level number one. Many people will tell you, how do you know that you've learned something for real when you start to apply it? Up until that point, it's all abstract theory, which is meaningless. Once you begin to apply it in real life, then you know you've really learned it. That's layer number one. So Aleph, the first explanation is Talmud brings to Maise, therefore if I've reached Maise, I know that my learning was appropriate. If I could translate it into something that I'll actually apply in my life, then I know that I learned for real. Because the the nature of academics is that it can be very broad and you can argue any case in different directions, quite convincingly actually. So how do I know when I've got the correct understanding when it can apply in practice? So what's the test of true learning? Does it work in practice? To put it in simple language, if the way that I have learned something matches the way it's brought, let's say in Shulchan Aruch, then I know that I've learned it properly. So Talmud, maybe, when my learning brings me to a point that I can apply it in reality, then I know I've learned it properly. What does that mean on a more spiritual note? The same principle will apply. How do I know that my meditation, that my contemplation is genuine? Here I am contemplating Hashem's infinite greatness and human frailty. How do I know that it's real? If all of that deep spiritual meditation affects me to actually do something, to actually serve Hashem better, to do another mitzvah, then I know that it was a genuine hisboinunus. But if it's just flying away with the angels and having some kind of a spiritual odyssey, but it doesn't translate into something in tachlis, then it was a misguided meditation. That's level number one. Level number two is that the truth is, if you want to know how to apply something in practice, it will force you to learn better. Meaning, Base. To have real, meaningful, complete, wholesome learning, it has to be directed towards a pragmatic outcome. You see this in practice. Anytime that a person has to work out, okay, I have many different thoughts in my mind, many different approaches, how do I know which one is correct? And why do I have to choose a correct option? Because I have to make a practical decision. So now I've got contradictory thoughts in my head. I have to make a decision in order to do something in practice. Then, that's going to force me to rethink and to re-examine and to research deeper and deeper and deeper until I get to the point that, okay, now I know what I'm supposed to do. And that's actually why the Gemara uses the expression that it says, learning is great because it brings to action meaning. That means not only does the practical application become the litmus test of whether the learning was genuine or not, but more than that, the focus towards action 
makes the learning a greater kind of learning. Because that's how it is. The nature of having to come to a practical conclusion forces me to be more certain about what I've learned. So if I'm learning something as a theoretical concept, okay, not the end of the world if I haven't mastered it completely or haven't examined every level of depth. But if it's going to apply in practice, I really, really need to know what I'm talking about. So, Now, the only thing that these two have in common is that in both cases, action is there to facilitate greater learning. So, if I'm going to test the application as the indicator of whether or not I learned something properly, or whether being forced to have to make a practical decision is what's going to force me to do proper research, in either case, the action lands up being the cause or the accessory to greater learning. So, When I go with the first attitude, the first approach, which is, how do I know that I've learned this correctly because I know how to apply it in practice? I'm not yet necessarily applying it in practice. I just know in my head that this is the correct path to follow. Even in the second case where I really have to make a practical decision and that's what's forcing me to analyze so deeply, still, all that I walk out with at the end is that the learning benefited Godel Talmud, the learning benefited from the focus on action. But I don't see that there's any value in the action and I certainly don't see any marriage between the learning and whatever values in the action. So therefore, there's a far higher experience, and this is actually the, the ultimate, this is the goal. Where a person's learning is focused on the action in such a way that the learning wants to enhance the action. Not that the action will enhance the learning. That's what we said before, because I know I have to translate it into action. That's going to enhance my level of learning. We're looking at the other way around. The learning is going to enhance the action, meaning, Many people, while they're going through the academic process, are in one state, and then when they have to do it in practice, they're in a different state. And here what we're trying to say is that a person reaches a point where as I am doing this particular action, it is so illuminated by the understanding that I have that it's a completely different experience of action. I'm not just going through the motions. I'm not just just discharging a responsibility. I'm feeling the immense insight right now in this activity. So, this would be the completely different experience of somebody who's doing something with their sensation and the awareness of, of its meaning. You can imagine he's going to do it completely differently with a whole different enthusiasm and a whole different commitment because he can feel the essence of the value of this particular thing happening right now. Okay. How does that happen practically? You're talking about two completely different worlds. You've got a world of intellect and you've got a world of action. How can you possibly drag the intellect down into the realm of action? How can you expect that the intellectual component of a human being should be active and not just active, but defining and filling the entire experience of a person while he's in the state of action? How do you get intellect into the state of action? So here's the vort. As long as a person is engaged in the intellectual process somewhat superficially, as soon as you're dealing with something superficially, you realize that every component of a person's character and of your neshama belongs in its particular place, fulfilling its particular objective. So, intellect belongs in the mind, emotions belong in the heart, action belongs in the, in the hands. So, as long as I'm dealing with things only with the lesser part of myself, then I've got to choose. Either I'm in the intellectual world or I'm in the practical world. I cannot be in both simultaneously. So from this reality, if I'm now parked in the world of intellect, I'm in deep study, 
action can't talk to me right now. It's too superficial. It's not sophisticated enough to be in this world. The only part that action might play is how it helps me to learn better. So if I have to know what to do in practice, that part of the action will be part of my process because it's going to help me learn better so that I'll know the right answer. But action per se doesn't belong in this vaunted world of intellect. But when a person engages in Torah learning with his all, with the depth of his soul, it's not just, okay, here, we're going to learn this thing because I enjoy intellectual pursuits. And so here's another academic subject. This is Pnimius Nafshoi. I'm investing myself in this. Then, with my whole neshama, is invested in this learning, it wouldn't make any sense to say, but there's a part of my neshama that doesn't have a, pl- a role to play here. So now I land up in a reality, not only does my learning influence my behavior, which would really only require the lower aspects of the soul, the parts of the soul that translate ideas into practice, Something magical happens now. My great, empowered, sophisticated intellect and my pragmatic, simplistic action harmonize. Which means that my brain doesn't switch off, not only doesn't it switch off, but the full intellectual power of my understanding does not dissipate when I start to do the action. In the language of Hasidus, when a person has really broad intellect, or when a person gets to the essence of intellect, then the full power and force and illumination of that intellect washes right through the entire experience of all of the application, all the, the, the actual mitzvahs that the person is doing. Based on this, we can understand a beautiful insight into what the Rambam says. When you first read it, the Rambam sounds like he's saying something quite straightforward. Just as you can identify a Torah scholar by his intellect, you should also be able to identify him by his conduct. But now we see this with a whole new dimension, meaning... So let's see what he says. Just as you can identify a wise person by his wisdom, likewise you should be able to identify him by the way he carries himself, engages in business, eats, drinks, sleeps. So what's the Rambam really saying? The real definition of a chacham means that wisdom and intellect is not something he possesses, it's who he is. He is a chacham, not he has intellect. He is a chacham. To the extent that you can detect his incredible chachma in every part of his being equally. That's why he says, As much as you could see the chacham in his lecture, that's how much you could see the chacham in his eating lunch. So what do you see? You see even in those parts of the person which appear to be so superficial because this is a chacham, chacham informs everything about him. So not only are you able to see that his wisdom has an impact and influence over his deeds, like two things where one affects the other. Which would effectively mean that even the Schocham has different stages. When he's engrossed in his Schochmah, then he's in a world of his own. And when he enters the realm of ordinary conduct, yes, of course, you can see the Hashpah of his wisdom, but he's not fundamentally different to everybody else. That's not what the Rambam is saying. Ella, what the Rambam is saying is, that the Chochem while eating lunch is as distinct from the average person as the Chochem while engrossed in the deepest wisdom that he could possibly explore. So that's the Chap over here. 
The ultimate goal is that all of the Torah learning that a person learns should completely become one with everything that the person does in every area of life, including the most superficial, mundane activities. That's a Chacham. And this is what the Meraglim missed. Now we're starting to understand that it's not as we originally thought, that the Miraglim rejected the opportunity to go to Eretz Yisrael because it was going to require a lot more Maise and they preferred to learn. So that implies that they loved learning so much and they were reticent to give it up for deed. That's not what's happening over here. The learning of the Miraglim was not as it should have been. Had it been as it should have been, they would never have had this problem. We know that the generation in the desert, their primary focus was Torah learning. They were called the generation of knowledge. They were in the most pristine, perfect environment to learn Torah. No distractions, no responsibilities, best teacher and divine revelation. So the Meraglim were totally caught up in Torah learning, but the idea that Talmud may be the day Maise, and specifically the way that we have just described it, that the same level of wisdom and connection to Hashem that is available during Torah learning is equally available during Maise Amitzvahs that they missed, that they didn't understand. The possibility that a person could have such a broad, wide, powerful, deep degree of Chochmah that it could become the whole person even while they're not learning, they couldn't see that. The possibility that a person could be doing practical actions and yet be totally awash with this powerful energy of Seichel, couldn't understand. Therefore, their engagement in learning for the purpose of doing mitzvahs was was not focused on let's bring the light and the purity of the midbar into Eretz Yisrael. As far as they were concerned, there's only one kind of Talmud, and that is what? Where the mitzvahs that you do actually add value to the Torah that you're learning because you have to research more in order to be able to do the mitzvahs. So they couldn't see that, that transmission. They couldn't see that transfer. They couldn't see that possibility of so much depth in the experience of Limit Torah that it remains there even while you're doing a mitzvah, even while you're in Oilam now we're understanding the Miraglim completely differently. We're understanding that the first crack in their armor was that their actual learning of Torah was not the way that it should have been. Then, that their intellectual process and their understanding and perspective wasn't as it should have been. And not because they had a fundamental opposition to doing mitzvahs. They had a misunderstanding of how it works. Now Now we can understand why Rabbi Yitzchak says, and there's only one out of all of the Miraglim that is relevant to us. In earlier generations, where the primary way in which Jewish people committed themselves to Hashem was with very deep, profound intellectual connection. So at that time, they were much more similar to the Miraglim, very deeply steeped in Torah learning, and they really had to know all of the possible pitfalls of how not to become like the Miraglim. To avoid having the breakdown between this very deep, meaningful connection to Hashem and the actions that you do. And because each shevet has its particular path to Hashem, therefore, so each person, depending on which shevet you belong to, you had to know how to interpret the relevant uh, one of the Miraglim that was from your shevet, so you could be sure that you didn't fall into the same trap. That was really important for them because there was a time in history where they were behaving like the Miraglim, primary focus on connection to Hashem through deep Torah learning. 
Each person had to be sure that he was protected from not falling into the natural trap of his particular shevet. But now we're further down the road in history. When we compare the earlier generations to Malachim, and we're just like people. Generations have diminished. And as we say in Chesidus, especially nowadays, where the whole idea of Sukkah's David, the whole spirituality of our world is really at its lowest ebb. Nowadays, our primary way of serving Hashem is not through Limit Torah, it's through doing mitzvahs, practically. Put on tefillin, light Shabbos candles. That's our primary connection now. So therefore, for us today, we don't have to get into the nuance of each of the Miraglim and how exactly it was in the Shorish of the Miraglim's mistake. So we don't have to grapple as earlier generations did to make sure that the limit HaTorah that we have is with the correct dedication to Hashem and the correct openness to do what they wish to want from us and Talmud HaMevilet HaMaisa which is obviously unique to each individual what's relevant to us What's most relevant to us is, how do we translate it into practice? Where our primary thing, as Alter Rebbe says, that is equal across the board to every single Jewish person is what? Application. Doing mitzvahs for real. So we have to relate to like the more generic message of where the Meraglim went wrong, which is not to prioritize Maise enough. And now we can understand why Rabbi Yitzchak uses this expression. We only have at hand one principle. It's similar to what it says, that there's one primary principle that we all have to have as Jewish people, and the whole of Torah hinges on it. It's the same kind of concept over here. There's one issue that we have to be able to avoid, and everything else about our spiritual health depends on it. What we have to take out of the meaning of all of the names of the Meraglim is one singular message that is relevant to us. And that take-home message is that you have to have Maise. That's what we need to know. That's what we have to take home. Don't fall into the trap of the Meraglim who undermine the value of Maise. We have to have something that applies equally to every Jew in every generation without distinction. So now that we understand also that there's only one take-home lesson from the whole story of the Meraglim that we have to know to prioritize Maisa Mitzvahs, now we get the meaning of the word Sosar Maisav Shel HaKadosh Baruch this is alluded to in the name Sasur ben Michoel. He destroyed the deeds of Hashem. They created a world of deed. That's Maise HaKadosh Baruch the world of Asiya, a world of deed. Why did he do it? That we, as Yidin, should build that world up to become Hashem's home in the lowest realm. So if we don't prioritize doing mitzvahs, practical application of Judaism, then we're breaking down what Hashem has created. We're causing to remain in a perpetual state of devastation because only we can build it. And it's not then going to be the home that Hashem wanted for him. As we know, the Gemara says that any generation that does not merit to see the reconstruction of the Beis HaMikdash, it is as if we witnessed and were cause for its destruction. So, so, means if we're not prioritizing mitzvahs, and we're not making dirabatachtoinim, then we're undermining completely Hashem's world of Maiseh. 
Somebody might ask me, seeing as they created the world this way, how could it fail? The is all capable. Nothing can obstruct him. How is it even thinkable to suggest that a human being, because, and because I'm lazy, because I'm not focused, I should be able to destroy Hashem's world? And Abish is going to allow the possibility that it's not going to, that his goal is not going to see fruition. Okay, look, if Abish had not verbalized that this is the intention, then we could have excused ourselves and says, and we could have said, maybe we don't know about it. Or maybe they just didn't put it into the world of Debra. So who says it has to be practical? But the fact that Hashem said that this is the Kavana, put it into the world of reality, because that's what happens when you speak. You put it out there. Now it's real. Once Hashem said and instructed that this is what we need to do, Davis's speech is as compelling and powerful as our deeds, or as deed. How is it possible that we could stymie Hashem's kavana? How could we be so Says Rabbi Yitzchok So therefore, Rabbi Yitzchok tells us how does Sasur happen? It's a product of son of means product of Michael. What's Michael? Michael is that he made out as if Hashem, so to speak, is weak. What does that mean? The deeper meaning is it's not just to say the Meraglim is saying, well, our abilities have been weakened. They're actually talking about Hashem. In order to facilitate the possibility of free choice, without which we cannot make Hashem's dira basachdainim. So they wish to made, so to speak, as if he's weak. That it's possible that they wish should say something and it won't actually affect us. He allowed us the possibility of even doing something against what Hashem wants. So Susur ben Michoel, the most important thing we have to remember, there's one take-home message from the Miraglim. Don't undermine or underestimate the value of Maiseh. Why would you do so? Susur ben Michoel, because you think, look, the was weak, so to speak, allowed me free choice, and therefore I might have the possibility of acting against what Hashem wants. Now here's where it gets interesting. It's very clear over here that we have to be sure not to undermine the power of Maiseh. But then we could make a mistake in the opposite direction. So, okay, fine, we're the... Uh, the generation of action, that's all that counts. As long as we're doing what we have to do, that's all we have to worry about. Why do we have to learn? Why do we have to feel? Just do. Therefore, Rabbi Yochanan says, ah, we can add to this as well. We can add another perspective. You have just learned how much we have to focus on Maiseh. Comes along, Rabbi Yochanan, and he says, Don't conceal Hashem's Dibur. Don't think just because you're involved in the world of Maiseh that you don't have to think about how the Ebishter creates the world, how the Ebishter is called Yochoil, etc. Don't hide away the word of Hashem that makes every single thing exist at every single moment. It's not just good enough to do. You have to see and detect in the doing Hashem's words. Hashem's koyach. Vatama Dovak from Shekvan is boy, Pomim Rabois, 
The reason, as has been explained many times, it's not enough just to build a structure for Hashem, but it has to be illuminated, it has to be bright, it has to feel warm. Meaning that Elikus should be visible in this home. Just like a home that has bright lights, you can see what you're doing. The Dira B'Tachtonin that we make has to be that place so you could see godliness. How do you do that? What we need is that our actions should be illuminated. They should pulsate with light. They should pulsate with energy. Don't just check boxes and say, we did it, we did the mitzvah. It's got to be alive. So why would a person get to that point where you kind of leave the Ebeshta out of it, where you don't necessarily have the passion in mitzvahs? How could that happen? Nachbi is the son, i.e. product of Vavsi. What's Vavsi? The possibility of a person going through and fulfilling mitzvahs, but forgetting about the noisen mitzvahs, the mitzvah mitzvahs, without detecting and feeling the Ebishter's words of creation at every moment. How does that happen? That's when a person skips over the midas. I'm, I'm not going to get into the whole thing about Abbas Hashem, Yiras Hashem. That was for earlier generations, you know, really special people. We're the pragmatic generation. We're the Durashvi. You know, we've got to just get the job done. And we think perhaps it's acceptable for us to let go of Abbas Hashem and Yiras Hashem. Trample over, skip over Hashem's midas. But when a person knows that you have to have love, you have to have the midos, you have to have the passion for what Hashem wants, then you'll never land up in, in Hechbi. You'll never land up hiding Hashem from your experience of mitzvahs. It will be pulsating, it will be real to you. And that will help us to understand the specific wording that Rabbi Yochanan used, where he said, let us also say that we could learn Nachbi ben Vavsi. As we already discussed, what happened with the Miraglim? Why did they hide what Hashem had said, either from the community or from themselves, like the Marashal says? Why? Because they wanted to stay in the world of thought. They wanted to stay in the spiritual arena and not have to get their hands dirty in Maisa Mitzvahs in the physical world. They wanted to be in a place where all you feel and all you experience is Hashem's Machshava. They didn't want to enter the world of Dibur, which means the physical world, which Hashem is speaking into existence at all times. So basically that would keep the Dvar Hashem hidden in the world, because of course if we're not doing mitzvahs, and if you're not engaged in the world, who else is going to reveal the Elikus in the world? It's only us. And they didn't want to do that, they wanted to stay in their spiritual cocoon. Now, this is a completely different experience to us. For us, if we skip over the midos, it's because we're so fixated on just doing the task that we forget that it should be done with passion. They didn't want to go down to the realm of midos. Midos relate to the world. This is the world of seichel they wanted to live in, which is divorced from the world. It's a completely spiritual environment. Midos, well, that's how the Abish created the world with the, with the six midos. So, midos boss of Adam, azulas. Just like in human experience, right? In human experience, what happens? In human experience, feelings connect you to other people. They wanted They wanted just to get straight to the real stuff, the divine insight that precedes the world and is beyond the world. It can never be revealed in the world, which is why in the realm of Malchus we don't see these things. We have to experience the, the, the avoidance of Nachbi Ben Vafsi on the opposite extreme. We're not in, in danger of getting caught up in some lofty spiritual ideal that we detach from the world. We, we have to worry. We have to be careful. 
that we are sure not to only just go through the 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 the, the, uh, move, the motions of just doing Torah mitzvahs. We have to make sure that we infuse our Torah mitzvahs with a sense of passion and enthusiasm. Now somebody might ask, You'll say, okay, fine, I get it, I understand. We're learning, uh, we're living in a, in a lower generation, and yet we still have to somehow grasp at the concept of Midois, somehow grasp at the concept of having a feeling of Avas Hashem and Yiris Hashem. You'll say, listen, I'll do it, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're a lowly generation, and it's going to be quite superficial. I'm going to show love of Hashem, but it won't be real love of Hashem. I'm going to try and learn the deepest concepts, but I'm not going to learn nearly at the same level as preceding generations. It's not real seichel as it is in the mind, or midas as they are in the heart. It's seichel and midas as they are in, in my very superficial social media-based generation. How am I going to do it? How am I going to achieve Hashem's goal for a Dirbatachtonim, which requires real Talmud, right? Talmud, I may be the day Maisa. How am I going to do it? We're an orphan generation. Where are we going to get the resources of what they had in previous times? Seeing as the entire Jewish people over the course of the entire history is one organism. That indicates that even now that we're perhaps doing things at a highly superficial level, don't worry, the avoid of our predecessors fills in the intellectual and emotional value for us. So when we do mitzvahs now and we try and infuse them with the very superficial degree of emotion that we have and the very limited understanding that we have, doesn't matter. It carries with it the weight of everything that preceded us. That's why Rabbi Yitzchak straight away put us right. And he said, this is a tradition we carry from our fathers. Even though practically we're only going to have one take-home message out of the whole story, and that is, do mitzvahs. But whatever came before us, all of the input of the earlier generations and all of the things that they had to be so cautious about, we have them in our hands. It's not past tense, it's cumulative. Their efforts shine through in our efforts, even if our efforts are far less impressive. It's just a Masoiris, meaning to say it's not something we will experience in our, we won't feel it, we won't feel the Avas Hashem that they had, we won't have the depth of insight that they had. All we get begiloi is our avoider of doing mitzvahs befoil, but wow, are we carrying an incredible spiritual dynamite in all of those actions? And therefore, at the end of the day, through us doing what we have to do, we close the circle, we complete the objective, we bring Mashiach, and that's what counts.